Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today by Alex Spear of the Boston Globe. Alex has done the Red Sox top 10 for us for a long time here at Baseball America, one of the best beat writers in the country for my money. Alex, the Red Sox had a bit of an adventurous year. They won 108 games and won the World Series in 2018. This year, things did not go according to plan. They went 84 and 78, dropped to third place, and perhaps most surprising of all, they fired President of Baseball Operations Dave Dombrowski. There was a lot of discussion about having a more sustainable operation, deeper farm system. They went out and hired Haim Bloom, who built up one of the most sustainable organizations in baseball with the Tampa Bay Rays on a shoestring budget. When you look at the Red Sox and where they are as we enter the new decade, how do you kind of assess their position in Major League Baseball? Interesting, and uh, I guess in flux. Um, they're a team that still has uh, that still has a, a pretty, a, you know, a, a standout group of players of, uh, of top tier talents. But uh, those players are becoming a little bit older, and thus becoming um, a little bit less reliable in terms of uh, health and/or productivity. That really blew up on them on the pitching side of things this year, where they have a lot of money committed for a number of years moving forward to Chris Sale and David Price and Nate Ivaldi. And uh, you know, those are how those investments, how efficient those investments prove to be, will have a lot. Uh, will dictate a lot about um, about what happens with the Boston Red Sox this year. Those uh, those investments. We're not at all efficient uh, because, um, you know, all three of those guys were injured for a significant chunk of the year and uh, and underperformed uh, for the times when they were on the mound. So that's not good. Um, the Red Sox still had uh, a really nice talent base, though, that was mixed with, you know, a bunch of guys. J.D. Martinez is kind of a veteran who at age 31 remains an elite hitter, albeit one who didn't have quite the same impact that he had had in the previous couple of years. But then not only do you have kind of the... You have, uh, you have guys who are staggered in interesting ways. So uh, Mookie Betts and Xander Bogarts were born within a week of each other in 1992. Both finished uh, really good age 26 seasons. Um, however, uh, Betts has one year of team control remaining. Bogarts re-signed with the Red Sox, uh, agreed to an extension in spring training. It'll keep him around for a long time. Uh, Betts, we have no idea how much longer he's going to be around with the Red Sox. So um, that is, you know, when you talk about that question of sustainability, well, having a guy under team control for one year before you anticipate he's going to go out on the free agent market puts you in an interesting spot. That said, even behind those guys, you still have Rafael Devers emerging as a star caliber performer at third base in the middle of the line of force, seemingly for years to come. Uh, Andrew Benintendi coming off of a bad year. So, they, they have a nice position playing core. They have a talented pitch, starting pitching base that ultimately is going to, they, they might be subject to greater volatility on a year-to-year basis in its performance. And then at the farm system level, they've gotten to a point where they're, they have some depth pieces coming, but they lack high-end talent 
in the uh, in the upper minors. Like they don't have uh, they don't have the proverbial blue chip top twenty five, top fifty prospects in the upper minors. They have they have some interesting guys who you know like a Tristan Cassis who's a few years out, but uh, but in terms of kind of maintaining a star caliber pipeline, uh, that is uh, you know there, there's going to be a gap there for the Red Sox barring trades. Uh, to bring in someone, uh, someone like that. So they're a team in transition. They brought in High and Bloom because uh, he has a reputation for having gotten uh, the most out of his roster. Whether it's helping guys develop to their, you know, to fuller potential, uh, the Rays are thought of as kind of being a uh, as being an extremely forward-looking organization from from which the Red Sox can benefit from from a bit more of that approach. He's obsessive about depth, which means that rather than viewing the roster as static, he's probably going to take. Uh, a more uh, a more fluid approach, which means a lot of trades coming um, in order to upgrade all parts of the forty man roster, and not just you know not just thinking okay we have this you know there's there's no eighth inning guy trade for an eighth inning guy. Um, I, I think that things are about to get a little weirder than that, which is kind of intriguing to think about. So, uh, in, broadly, in answer to your question of where the Red Sox stand, um, a talent base that gives them the potential to contend for a championship. Uh, but without, uh, but without, right now, a team that's searching for the supporting infrastructure, the depth, and the you know, and the sustainable pipeline uh, that will give them greater assurances of being able to hit that ceiling, rather than being um, kind of on a year-to-year roller coaster. You mentioned the depth and the sustainable pipeline coming into the year. Ba, we ranked the Red Sox as the worst farm system in Major League Baseball. But the point I made on a number of podcasts, every interview I could, and something that I think was important to keep in mind is they were the worst farm system because they graduated a tremendous talent base, as you alluded to: Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers, Andrew Benintendi, Jackie Bradley Jr., Mookie Betts. All those were homegrown guys that got them a World Series. They traded a number of other high-caliber prospects like Yohan Moncada, Michael Kopech to help acquire the pieces that got them a World Series championship, which at the end of the day is the point of all of this. So while the Red Sox having a farm system that was 30th, what I tried to bring home was it's okay. The fact they were 30th means they did everything right. There's just always a little bit of a bill to pay when you do have to make all those trades and you graduate so much talent. You win a World Series, that's the point, but there's going to be a little bit of a fall off. Now when you look at the Red Sox farm system, Again, a lot of people seem to be focusing on the fact that they were last. They're still in the bottom third, but they have improved. Do you yep. feel like that trade-off of was, I don't know if less tolerable was something that came up? Because it seemed like there were a lot of mentions about the Red Sox having a bottom-ranked farm system and the rationale for firing Dombrowski, when in reality, at least from my perspective, the fact they had the bottom-ranked farm system means they did everything right in terms of graduating guys and trading guys to get the final pieces to put you over the top. Yeah, I, I totally agree, right? The the idea behind having a really good farm system is to put you in position to win, which they did. Uh, and you know, if you were to if you were to change the calculus to being, you know, uh, to ranking organizations based on talent bases that were let's say like age twenty six and under, well, I think the Red Sox would uh, would you know would have fallen pretty favorably into that uh, into that ranking over the past year. That said, you know, you do also want. Uh, you, we're in an era where teams want to have their cake and eat it too. Um, so you know the Dodgers model of Andrew Friedman is kind of the uh, is kind of an aspiration for the Red Sox in terms of where they'd like to be as a larger market team. And you know they, the reality is that the Dodgers have gotten more impact uh, out of their have gotten more sustainable impact out of their farm system over the last few years, even under the restrictions of the new CBA. Uh, you know finding the Walker Buellers. 
you know, and uh, and you know the Verdugos of the world in order to keep you know keep priming the pump um, is something that has been noteworthy for the Red Sox from afar. I think it's also worth noting that uh, that some of the you know I, I think that there were also um, with Dave Dombrowski there were there were some kind of players who were who ended up being quote unquote rounding errors with uh, in trades. You know, so when the Red Sox traded for Craig Kimbrell, uh, that was a four for one deal. And, you know, there was a question about whether or not it need to be a four for one, you know, or whether they could have made that trade without Logan Allen, who this year would have been uh, maybe a significant depth contributor for the Red Sox, um, or at least have been given an opportunity to be that uh, if he hadn't been traded in another deal down the road. Um, there, were, there were a couple of other instances of that where uh, where the, the kind of eagerness to get a deal done rather than grinding a deal uh, and you know, and kind of capping the uh, the prospect departure, like that ended up having uh, some of the longer term impact of that ended up showing up. Or maybe it was the fact that there wasn't a proactive approach taken to uh, trading from different areas of the roster for you know for a guy who would have represented um, a an upgraded starting pitching depth uh, depth addition um, ended up being seen as uh, as an area of weakness for the Red Sox. So. Uh, I, I think that overall, um, there's a sense that you know Dave Dombrowski's management style, which he nailed. Let's let's also be very clear about this. Dave Dombrowski, like first three years of what he was brought in to do with the Red Sox, you know, killed it in terms of uh, in terms of what his uh, what his mission was, uh, which was take a team that was really talented, give it the supplemental parts to make it into a winner. Well, mission accomplished, right? 108 win team. I'm writing a book. Uh, and there's, you know, there, there were three really good playoff teams. This year, the, the fact that he was locked in on major league roster decisions rather than, you know, rather than looking for creative ways to upgrade overall organizational depth caught up with them in a way that, you know, that kind of took the, uh, took the 2019 season off a cliff. Now we move into the Heim Bloom era. As you mentioned, Bloom has a reputation for really providing a tremendous amount of depth, uh, top to bottom, throughout his organization. Whether that's waiver wire pickups, trades for guys who were seen as not viable for other big league clubs, almost in a little bit of a way the Dodgers have done it, finding some guys who were discarded and turning them into everyday players. Uh, obviously, they've drafted very well. The Rays have the number one farm system in baseball, as well as a 96 win team. You talk about that duality of having your cake and eating it too. Moving forward with the Red Sox, we've talked about the farm system improving. There could be some big trades to be made this offseason. We still have to see what happens with Mookie Betts. Tristan Casas was the number one prospect ranked in the system by your rankings. There were some other candidates. Bobby Dahlbeck just wrapped up his run with Team USA on the U.S. Olympic qualifying team. It looked great. Brian Mata had a really good year. Jaron Duran broke out, hit almost 400 at high A and made his way up to double A. And Noah Song looked like a future standout as well for Team USA. So there were more players to deal from this year in terms of deciding who's number one. What ultimately, after your discussions with evaluators inside and outside the organization, put Cassis over the top and made him the number one prospect in this system? Yeah, I'd say not only was he number one, but it was it was a, a pretty clear number one uh, in terms of uh, in terms of like being a guy who just can, completed a ball. You know, that's that's a little bit of a riskier profile by virtue of the distance from the big leagues. He's a teenager, uh, but boy, he was awfully impressive relative to what you expect as a performance baseline of a guy in his uh, first full professional season. Um, dating back to his amateur days when he got seen a lot because he was playing, uh, he was playing in international tournaments for uh, for 
some of the some of the junior team US uh, US teams. Um, he shows a really interesting adaptable approach in the uh, in uh, adaptable hitting approach, uh, where you know he's this giant guy who has who has just enormous raw power. You know, he's a guy who is you know in high school was hitting balls. 450, 475 feet, uh, but um, that power is is not just you know is not just a guy who's looking to turn and burn, but instead you know he's willing to he's willing to shorten up, he's willing to choke up, he's willing to spread out his stance uh, in order to have a good two strike approach, but he can still do damage with that approach because uh, because he's he's able to catch the ball deep and drive it to the opposite field. So um, there's a there's a really nice offensive foundation there. Uh, someone who looks like, you know, especially for a big guy, is going to be able to control uh, his strikeout rate in a, in a way that distinguishes him uh, from other people who have that kind of power. And then uh, at first base, he shows the he shows the tools to be um, at at a minimum an above average defensive first baseman and, and possibly something north of that. Um, so there's just a ton of conviction about the overall mix of what he brings, along with you know, along with great makeup. There, there just haven't been uh, a ton of holes in his game at an early stage. He struggled badly at the start of 2019 um, when he got kind of too spread out, and with this big giant, like you know, six foot four frame, was uh, was really squatting down. It wasn't quite Phil Plantier, but uh, but it was uh, it was distinctive. And then you know, the Red Sox had a little conversation with him about you know maybe maybe stand up and be a, be a little bit more upright, a little bit more athletic. And once that happened. What had been a really high strikeout rate in the first month of the season got very much under control uh, for the duration of the season. And when you are a 19-year-old who's hitting, you know, who's hitting 20 homers in his first full minor league season, uh, that's really good. That's something that you know the last, the last, the, the only other Red Sox uh, minor player at any level to do that as a teenager, 20 or more homers uh, in the last 50 years was Xander Bogart. So um, that. That playable power at that age really stands out. Yeah, I'm looking back at a scouting report I got on Cassis back in June from his scouts. This was in early June before he had really even 100% hit his stride. Some of those early season struggles had still been present at the time the scouts saw him. And even then, the scout, I mean, just reading it, draws his walks, tough ABs, hard to strike out, 70 raw power, it's legit, 250, 260, big on base percentages, 30 bombs a year. Even though... The overwhelming consensus is he's probably going to be a first baseman. Maybe could fill in at third base. It seems like there's more than enough bat there, and he's only going to keep getting bigger and stronger and theoretically better. And you know, we shouldn't underrate the idea. Like we dismiss, we're you know, we we tend to go with the oh, he's only going to be a first baseman. Well, you know, if you have an impact defensive first baseman, and he's viewed as not just being like playable at the position, but potentially really good there. You know the the impact that that can have on a uh, on on an, on an infield is is significant and not to be you know not to be underrated, especially when you're talking about what you can do then with second baseman and shifts and how aggressive you can be with the rest of the infield. Like that, uh, being an impact defender does play at any position, I think. Um, and so you know we're we're kind of overmind. Oh, you just stick a guy at first base. Well, that not all first basemen are defensively created equal. 
that is very, very true. And you saw it uh, with Adrian Gonzalez. You've, you've seen some great defensive first basemen, some less great defensive first basemen. But either way, the bat is what separates Tristan Casas. And again, just looking at the reports, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me is, again, it's not just big guy with a ton of raw power. I keep going back to how advanced at the plate he is. It keeps coming up, doesn't swing it much out of the zone. We see him adjust. He chokes up with two strikes, which mm-hmm. you don't see a whole lot of anymore. I mean, this is a guy who's not just a big swing from his heels kind of power donkey. This is a guy who really knows how to hit, and that projects really, really well moving forward. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot to be said in this era for someone who shows an adaptable approach and shows significant hitting intellect, right? Because uh, we're, it, it's not just an instinctual game in the batter's box anymore. Uh, there is a lot of cat and mouse, and he showed uh, aptitude and intelligence in the box that um, and, you know, and an acceptance of the idea that, uh, that growth and learning was going to be a part of what he went through in this, uh, in this first full pro season. There was, there was a lot of maturity there for a guy who's a teenager. Now, he is very, very young. This is not someone who Red Sox fans necessarily should expect to be in the major leagues. Definitely not next year and probably not even the year after that. What are the biggest things Tristan Casas needs to do moving forward to become the Red Sox everyday first baseman of the future? I think that, uh, you know, finding exactly uh, what kind of physical approach he wants in the batter's box and where he's able to find the right balance between limiting swing and miss and uh, and being able to get to his power is, is really, like, find it, finding that place on, you know, adjusting the knobs, really, in order to uh, in order to make all of those things align as he faces more and more advanced pitching is going to be huge. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, obviously, uh, with a big left-handed hitter like that, you're always intrigued to see uh, how he develops in, in left-on-left matchups, whether or not that becomes uh, very platoonish, particularly once he gets to the upper levels and is seeing uh, more advanced breaking stuff. But, um, you know, overall, I, I think that, uh, I think kind of staying true to who he was this year is, uh, is a pretty good starting point. Another power-hitting corner infielder, Bobby Dahlbeck, took the number two spot. We mentioned Tristan Casas being pretty much the clear number one in this system. How much debate was there for Dahlbeck at number two compared to guys like Duran or Mata? Uh, the, D- Dahlbeck was the only other one who was suggested to me as the uh, as the number one in the system. I, I suppose there's one exception. One person said that he thought that if uh, if Noah Song was permitted uh, to uh, to pursue his baseball career immediately. Uh, and without questions about his military service commitments, that he had a chance to be the number one, uh, that he, he might be able to make a case for the number one. But other than other than the mention of Song in that context, and other and you know outside of the wide uh, wide number of people who are kind of banging the table for for Cassis, uh, there there were a couple of people who mentioned Dahlbeck um, in in surveying evaluators, and I, I don't think that uh, I can see no one else was no one was pushing for Mata. Or for Duran to be ahead of uh, of to be to be number one. Some people had them ahead of Dahlbeck, uh, but no one had those guys at number one. But Dahlbeck, you know, Dahlbeck receives some love, right? Like he's on the cusp of being a big league contributor. Uh, he is, um, you know, he he's he's a solid defender at, at third base, uh, even though that's probably not his position, his future position, if he remains in the Red Sox organization. Um, and the power is is real it's big uh it is uh you know it, it showed up a lot in his last month of the season and uh once he moved up to triple a with the uh with the juiced uh with the juiced triple a slash mlb balls you know he had seven homers and 30 games and, uh and you know there were there was a significant strikeout to walk disparity there but 
you know, there's there's going to be some transitional issues, I think, with, with a guy like Dahlbeck, but he's not far from being uh, a contributor at the big league level, and he is part of what is a better depth outlook overall for the Red Sox Major League roster. Dahlbeck was the Red Sox number one prospect at this time last year. He moved up to AAA and I got to watch him for Team USA uh, during the Arizona training camp and also watching him from afar during the Premier 12 tournament. What really stood out to me was a couple things. First of all, yes, there's swing and miss there. He's a big guy. That's just part of his game. But the power's really, really real. But I think there was a little more advanced hitability than I thought there was going to be. He was able to drive the balls the other way. He was able to work some counts. We've seen him draw walks at every level. The other thing that really stood out to me was the leadership. This was a guy who, on a team full of top-tier prospects, he was one of the older prospects on the team, felt like he really took the leadership mantle, really kind of led the way, moved over to first base so Alec Bone could play third, showed well there. I actually felt like, just me personally, coming out of that tournament, and I liked Bobby Dahlbeck. I thought he was a good player, even though he's an Arizona Wildcat and I'm an Arizona State Sun Devil. I still <laughs> liked him. Uh, but he was the guy for me that I probably felt had the biggest jump in my eyes, just from you know what I thought about him then to what I think about him now, because the leadership, the positional versatility, I, I think there's more pure hit there than maybe just looking at some of the batting averages would indicate. What do you kind of think about Dahlbeck in terms of beyond just the power, but the all-around player? Like so, he's willing to uh, he's willing to be very honest and self critical uh, in terms of figuring out how to become a better player, and that in turn kind of opens the door to continuing to become a better player. It's really funny, right? Because this was not a good year for him from a like batting average standpoint, um, and the numbers that he put up this year uh, weren't as outrageous as what he did in 2018 when he had 32 bombs between uh, between High A Salem and Double A Portland. Uh, you know. Power ticked down. It was a sub 500 slug this year, and he was hitting. You know, he was hitting what like a 240, 250, basically, uh, in uh, in mostly in Double A, and then at the end of the season in Triple A. But I feel like evaluators across the board had exactly the same reaction that you did. Namely, they became more impressed with the overall offensive approach, um, the fact that there is plate discipline there, the fact that there is uh, there's self awareness in his uh, in his swing and in his approach. That um, you know, that can allow him to be situationally, uh, that can allow him to be situationally impactful beyond just the possibility of like selling out for power. Um, and I think that there was an example of that in one of his final at bats of the uh, of of the uh, Premier Twelve tournament, where you know he jumped on a first pitch fastball and grounded a single up the middle through a giant hole that was up the middle in order to drive in what was at the time. Uh, a, a run that would have it looked like it had a chance to put the USA uh, in the Olympics. So um, he is uh, he's he's a cerebral player. Uh, there are some there are some things that he needs to clean up. There's some mechanical cleanup that the Red Sox were trying to achieve with him in his swing uh, when he had kind of a bit of an apprenticeship at the end of the season. Even though he wasn't being added to the roster, they brought him up to work with Major League staff. Um, but I think that there's a lot of belief in the idea that he can be a pretty valuable contributor. Like, let's say that based on the lower batting averages, you're, you're maybe looking at a guy who profiles, but, you know, again, you're looking at, uh, in terms of in-game power, you're talking about, you know, plus potential with solid on-base percentages, maybe a really nice six-hole hitter uh, who can still be a, a, a good run producer from that spot, um, and someone who has, you know, so, someone who's certainly shown uh, viable defensive abilities at third base in the major leagues. Uh, for the major leagues, 
he's still developing as a first baseman, but um, you would think that that would translate across the diamond. And if they ever want to experiment with throwing him in an outfield corner, we know that he has the arm for that. That is certainly true. Looking back through our reports, I mean, there's a pretty strong confidence that if he's able to keep the strikeouts down and get enough mm-hmm. at-bats, he will hit potentially 30 home runs, drive in 80 or 90 runs, have a few weeks where he can put a team on his back, just go on a power binge. But the ultimate question is, will he cut down on the strikeouts enough to get enough at-bats to do that? Because if he's hitting 210, 220, he won't be playing enough to hit those 30 home runs and drive in those 80 or 90 runs. If he's able to get to 240, 250, he might be. How much confidence is there that Dahlbeck will eventually cut down the strikeouts enough to ensure he does get a full season's worth of at-bats to reach those power numbers? He cut them down significantly this year as he was moving up, you know, moving up levels. So, you know, Double A last year at, during a season-ending uh, during a season-ending promotion, he had a really high strikeout rate. Off the top of my head, I don't remember. Like, I feel like it was like in the 35, 40 percent range. This year, he cut that down significantly, like by a, a good 10 percent, um, down into the 20s. Uh, and uh, and so that. That fact, and again, what we've been talking about with him being a cerebral guy, thoughtful guy, a guy with a good feel for the game, who's able to address his deficiencies, I think lends itself to um, a reasonable amount of optimism among Red Sox people that he is someone who's going to be able to, maybe over time, there may be, again, there may be a rocky transition period where, you know, where where he struggles for a while, uh, but that over time he'll be able to kind of adapt figure out some of the holes that are being uh, that are being attacked and make some adjustments uh, to allow him to counter some of that and get to being more of that, let's say, like, you know, a guy with a, you know, a 40 or a 45 hit tool. Uh, and they, they, a lot of Red Sox people think that he has a chance to be like, you know, maybe a 50 hit tool guy. But even if he's a 40 or 45, the power and the defense um, would make him, you know, a, a very reasonable everyday option in the major leagues. Absolutely. You've dropped the Matt Chapman comp before and hitting 230-240 with a ton of power and great defense. That'll get you an everyday job in the majors. Brian Mata and Jaron Durant at 3-4 was interesting to me. In your discussions with evaluators, what was it that elevated Mata over Durant for that number three spot? I, I think the you know ceiling was a ceiling was a big one. They both they both kind of had very similar years in a way. Both totally dominant in high A Salem this year, uh, and then both saw their numbers step back. Uh, in uh, in Double A Portland, uh, in Double A Portland, once they got um, to the more advanced level. In terms of Mata, the thing that you know, this, this is a guy who has uh, who has a a mid rotation ceiling. So you know, you're looking at uh, at a guy who's only 20 years old, right? If he were, if he had been, uh, if he had been draft eligible this past year, you know, throwing like you know, working with a 97 mile an hour two seamer and uh, and a swing and a swing and miss slider off of it. Um, you know, you'd be looking at an awfully interesting amateur in the draft. Uh, so scarcity of talent is, this, this is a guy who it's not hard to profile as a potential impact guy. The, the control question is an interesting one. Um, he had a catastrophic year in terms of uh, walk numbers in 2018, but he was making the shift from being a primarily four-seam driven pitcher to a two-seam guy who was reliant on, more reliant on movement with his fastball and who was also um, slightly adjusting arm slot you know, delivery in order to be able to get to uh, get to that change, and so he missed the strike zone a lot in 2018. And this year, seemed more comfortable in his delivery, um, and the walk numbers just you know 
plummeted, particularly because he p- figured out pitch combinations uh, that more effectively got people um, to chase out of the strike zone and you know and to make weak contact in it. So overall, just you know, you're seeing a 20 year old who made a huge step forward this year. With Duran, you know, there's a, you you talk about that Mata has a longer has a pretty long track record of like stuff giving people belief in what his upside might be. Uh, Duran. You know, was a college guy who looked like he had a chance to be, you know, a fourth outfielder when he was taken in the seventh round of the 2018 draft. Drastically outperformed that in his pro debut uh, in in Lowell and Greenville. And then this year, you know, he was flirting with 400 for a couple of months while playing in the Carolina League. Um, but he's interesting because in an era that's driven by power, where you're expecting, you know, as a baseline, like, you know, it's it's hard to find guys who are everyday players who don't have like 15 home run power. Now, his game is predicated upon uh, upon you know contact, speed, and you know he didn't get to his power a lot this year. I think that his home run totals were suppressed somewhat by playing in a really big park and a league that has a lot of big parks in the Carolina League um, and to a lesser extent the Eastern League. But um, you know, it's that profile, the the absence of power in his game, even for a guy who hit for really high average in uh, in high A, not so high in average in, in double A, um, you know, and stole a ton of bases, also primarily in high A, raised questions with a lot of people about whether or not uh, he's truly, you know, he's truly an everyday guy, uh, and like a roughly the overall profile would be that of kind of an average everyday center fielder, or if he's going to be more of a fourth outfielder. Yeah, that was a, a pretty consistent report I got in terms of just talking to scouts and seeing it myself. Is there was actually a decent amount of confidence that he'll have the opportunity to potentially play every day. It would just be as more of that average everyday regular, maybe hit at the bottom of the order, more of a number eight hitter than a number two hitter. I thought his second half of the season was really, really interesting because he struggled his first month once he got bumped up to Portland in June, then had a really good July fell back a little bit in August. Then when he went back to the Arizona Fall League, he hit okay over there. Now there were some issues with his outfield roots. He's a converted second baseman, and his outfield play is still developing. But I thought it was interesting that we saw bad month, good month, bad month, good month at the plate. How much faith is there that he will make enough contact to get on base enough, to steal enough bases, to provide the offensive value necessary to overcome the fact he doesn't have a tremendous amount of power? Yeah, that's the big question, right? Like, you know, 387 hitter in the Carolina League with, you know, mid-400s OBPs, like, no problem projecting a guy who can uh, who can hit enough at that speed to make an impact as an everyday guy. Uh, 250 hitter with, you know, like, again, I'm just going off the top of my head, uh, high 200s, low 300s OBP. Yeah, 309. In, uh, yeah, in, in Portland, like, that's not an everyday guy, but it's not uncommon for someone, for a player in his first full pro season, even out of college, to kind of hit a bit of a wall or face an adjustment difficulty while moving up to double A in that first full professional season. Um, so I, I think that there's, you know, I, I think that I think that there's reason to have some pause about it and to kind of want to see want to see more. But I, I think that it would be it would be silly to rule out. Um, it, it would be silly to say that uh, that Salem was a mirage. Uh, just as it would, you know, it, just as it would be a mistake to rule out Portland as being indicative of the fact that there are going to be, uh, that as he moves up and as you know, there are a few, there are fewer infield hits to be gotten um, based on uh, superior defense and positioning. Um, it would be a mistake to dismiss what happened in Portland as a potential question mark hovering over what his ceiling is. 
Is it fair to say that he's probably somewhere in the middle? He's certainly not a 387 hitter, but he's also probably not a, a 250, 309 on base percentage guy either? I think that's probably true, uh, but we, we kind of need to see more as he uh, as he progresses in the upper levels. I will say this. Um, he hits left-handers really, really well, and you know, in the Futures game, he had a really nice at-bat, left on left, ninth inning, uh, an opportunity in a tie game uh, to be able to make a mark with the runner on second base. Really nice left on left at bat in the Futures game where he showed the ability to cover different parts of the strike zone and he showed the ability just to just to flick the ball, you know, just to get the ball, just to make contact. And he singled to left field and uh, only advanced the runner to third, so he wasn't responsible for the walk off, uh, thus sparing me uh, a very lengthy rewrite of the story that I had written about him during the Futures game. Um, but, uh, you know, he, you can see him being able to address pitches in different part of the, parts of the strike zone that makes you think that he's, you know, there, there's, there, there's clearly a, there's clearly a hit tool there. And, but it has to be a really good hit tool. Like in order for him to be an everyday player, it better be a 60 if he's not a power hitter. Right. And so, uh, it, it, it can't just be an okay hit tool. It has to be really, really good. And the other component of that is the defense. Uh, as we mentioned, he was a second baseman throughout his time in college at Long Beach State. The Red Sox moved him to the outfield. Uh, when I saw him at Salem, he was playing center field. He was playing very, very deep, which, again, is just something that a lot of times guys who aren't really comfortable going back yet will do. And when I went out and saw him in the Arizona Fall League, there were some really, really poor roots, just to be frank, that resulted in a lot of balls dropping that shouldn't. Again, this was his first full season really playing the outfield. It's understandable. It's going to take time. What do evaluators see as possible for him to grow into defensively in the outfield? I would also say that Arizona is like a, a weird one. Like we, we shouldn't overlook the fact that like outfield defense happens like is way different in the AFL than it is in uh, in environments like on the East Coast, right? Like the the thin air means that the ball flies off the bat in a very different fashion. So. That, that also you would think that that also might play into some of the confusion for a guy who hadn't had a ton of exposure to the outfield um, I think that there you know his speed like his speed is a clear like elite asset right like he has he's a 70 runner uh, at least I guess um, and uh, you know that's going to allow him to mask some of his transitional deficiencies in the outfield you know outrun some of the mistakes he might have in his route uh, to be you know to be I, I think that it's it's not hard to project just based on speed alone, a guy who's going to be capable of becoming um, an average everyday center fielder uh, or a guy who's capable of playing the different outfield spots. It's not a plus arm, so you uh, so that that maybe impacts his uh, his defensive uh, positional versatility. You'd probably have, rather have him in center than in right. Um, but uh, you know, I think that there are some evaluators who think that he has a an above average to even plus ceiling in the outfield, depending on how he adapts out there. Um, but I think that there's a lot of people who think that he can at least be average in center field. When I describe the BA top 10 list to people who are trying to understand the methodology, what I always fall back on is what we're trying to accomplish is when you look 10 years from now back at a prospect handbook, we want the guys who have had the most successful major league careers to be who's lined up. That's the order we want those guys in. It's not just upside rankings. It's not just potential rankings. It's combination of upside proximity. We want to make sure that 10 years down the road, the list we put together is the list of the guys who had the most successful major league careers top to bottom. Noah Song on talent 
would be higher on this list, you addressed it with making the point that one evaluator thought without any restrictions he might be number one. On talent alone, independent of his military commitments, where would he have ranked on this list? I, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I would guess that uh, I would guess that I would have put him behind Mata because he hasn't at the number four spot, um, bumping Duran down because you know he hasn't done it in pro ball just yet. Uh, there's still some adjustments to be made, I think, in terms of uh, in terms of you know usage and you know and where like you saw you, in, in the Premier Twelve tournament, you saw him throwing you know ninety six to ninety nine with a four seam fastball. It didn't get a lot of swings and misses because it wasn't really. It didn't seem to have a ton of deception, and uh, and I don't think that he was attacking the ideal parts of the strike zone with it. Um, but you know, you can clearly see the makings of a guy who, if he's able to attack the top part of the strike zone, has you know a pretty good feel for a, for a solid slider. Uh, had snapped off some really really good curveballs, and we really didn't see the changeup at all in uh, in the Premier Twelve. But there are people who raved about what that pitch looked like. In Lowell, so you know he has a really nice arsenal. Still, some adjustments to go through to figure out exactly the kind of pitcher that he's going to be. Not that much, um, but uh, I would probably have him behind Mata just because Mata has already, you know, has already dominated at a uh, at a pretty high level in the Carolina League um, and made you know started the transition into the upper levels of the minors uh, with, uh, with 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 a. A pretty, you know, electric mix. So the probability is probably a little bit better with Mata right now. Um, and you know, I, I think that, but I think that both of those guys uh, project as maybe potential mid-rotation starters. So, uh, so yeah, Song would be Song would have been way up there, and I, I probably would have put him above Duran. And that again leads into what I was saying because there's a military commitment, and we don't know how much he's going to be able to pitch. Uh, that still hasn't been settled quite yet. He falls lower on this list. Again, these are not pure talent rankings. It's 10 years from now, who's going to have had the best major league careers? And with so many questions about what kind of career he'll be able to have, his risk goes up and that drops him down a little bit. You wrote an update yesterday. What is the current status of Noah Song? For those who don't know, Noah Song is a graduate of the Naval Academy. He's a commissioned officer. He is scheduled to report to flight school in December. There's currently discussions happening with the Department of Defense as to whether or not he will receive a waiver to immediately pursue a professional baseball career or if he will have to serve his five-year military commitment right off the bat, or at least two years of it before potentially petitioning for a waiver to serve the final three years of the reserves. With that, what is the status of Noah Song right now? Uh, TBD right now. He has uh, petitioned for a waiver um, to delay or uh, to delay his uh, the start of his service time so he can pursue a professional sports career. Um, the uh, Department of Defense just approved a change in policy uh, for service academy graduates um, who uh, who want to pursue professional careers? Um, they 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 uh, the policies suggest that uh, the DoD can approve a exactly the kind of waiver that Song is seeking. Song isn't affected technically by that policy because he's already graduated from uh, from the Naval Academy. Um, but certainly, the Navy is going to take in mind the recent policy change when evaluating Song's candidacy and the fact that there was a lot of nice press about him in the Premier 12 tournament probably increases the likelihood that, uh, that they might be, that the, that the uh, Navy and then the Department of Defense would approve such a waiver, particularly if there's uh, a likelihood of him participating in more international tournaments and representing the U.S. in that fashion. But um, nothing has been decided, nothing's been finalized. 
uh, his position is under review. So, you know, we're a couple weeks away from uh, from figuring out whether or not Noah Song is going to be a uh, is going to be uh, fully pursuing his pro baseball career right away with the Boston Red Sox. In which case, getting him in the fourth round and signing him for a hundred thousand bucks would represent an immense coup for their uh, for their amateur scouting department. Or if it's going to be two years at least before uh, before he's able to do so, in which case it, it introduces like a, a variable that's really hard to forecast. And again, because that variable is so hard to forecast, that's why he's a little bit lower on this list than maybe the pure talent would indicate. Alex, you put together this top 10. It's a mix of guys, uh, some pitchers at the lower levels, pitchers at the higher levels. There's guys who could theoretically help next year. You finished out with Tanner Houck, who, frankly, it was kind of a mixed look, both during Team USA training camp and at Premier 12. Was there anyone else outside this top 10 that drew serious consideration, or was this the 10 pretty much right off the bat? It wasn't the 10 right off the bat because I didn't realize that Darwinson Hernandez was still eligible uh, to be uh, to be on the list. And so once uh, once he remained on there, um, he fell one appearance short of graduating out of, uh, of prospect status, at the big, one, one big league appearance short of that, and he got shut down with about a week left in the season. Um, so uh, that squeezed off uh, that squeezed off two guys who I have been uh, considering for the number ten spot when Hauk was up at number nine. Um, C.J. Chatham, who you saw a lot of with the Premier Twelve tournament, uh, middle infielder for the Red Sox, a guy who's shown you know not necessarily plate discipline, but uh, but interesting bat to ball to get you know to get you know to hit for average uh, in the last couple of years. Um, he has uh, you know that's he, he's been uh, he's he's emerged as at least. Um, a, uh, a, a utility a utility infield profile and he started to take some fly balls in the outfield so he was a consideration as was uh, a 2019 sixth round pick Chris Murphy who went to Lowell and uh, you know he didn't really have a big prospect profile coming out of the University of San Diego but pitched extremely well in the New York Penn League and the pitch data on him was really really good left hander who's a little bit undersized you know about six feet tall but People care less and less about what pitchers look like now, and instead more what their pitches look like now. And the fastball has deception to it. You know, he's got a breaking ball that's effective. He, you know, he has a he has a, a changeup that's pretty good. You see the makings of you know of maybe a back end starter. So he was uh, those two. I was kind of debating it out uh, in my own mind who was going to be number ten, and then uh, Darwinson Hernandez uh, came busting in like the Kool Aid Man and pushed everyone down. Yeah, sometimes those late guys you realize, oh crap, he's still eligible, can throw things into a little <laughs> bit of disarray. We've all been there. I do want to hit on someone who did make the list. Jay Groom was tremendously hyped when he was drafted, has struggled with injuries, missed all of 2018 after having Tommy John surgery, came back this year in August and made three appearances through four innings. What's the latest on Jay Groom and where he stands? Um, he was able to make it back into games by the end of the season, which was a pretty significant sign. Uh, and... The velo is there. You know, he got up to 96 miles an hour in uh, while pitching for in the GCL and in Lowell. You know, struck out a couple batters. Just had a couple of appearances. Um, still working, obviously, to get his feel back for everything uh, after missing the better part of two seasons while recovering from Tommy John surgery. Um, you know, the last look that a lot of people had of him uh, when he was healthy was in spring training in 2018, and he looked like he was primed for. Uh, a pretty big performance that year before the elbow stuff started to creep into the equation. But, you know, it's been seen, right? Like he's shown a, he's shown, you know, mid nineties fastball 
devastating curveball from you know and an, an easy ability to repeat it uh, when he's feeling good, um, along with interesting signs of a changeup. Uh, you know that he's gotten more and more comfortable with over the course of uh, the couple of years that he's been in pro ball. So he's a wild card. I mean, it's basically like you know, it's basically as if he had just been drafted and had a couple of uh, a couple of season-ending appearances. Uh, he hasn't been terribly healthy in the few years since he's been drafted, um, but if he can be healthy and if Tommy John surgery represented the, you know, now that he's back on the mound, if that represents the end of the health concerns, then, you know, then he has he has probably more stealing than anyone else we're talking about among the pitchers. Yeah, I definitely think watching Jay Groom in 2020, what he's able to accomplish will be one of the more interesting subplots of the Red Sox season. Alex, just wrapping up, again, we talked about this as an improving system. They've added some draft picks who have performed well. Tristan Casas, their 2018 first rounder, having the year he had really helps elevate things. Where do you see this system as a whole right now and what needs to be filled in, if you will, to make it even better? as your rankings indicate. The fact that most of their best prospects had progressive steps forward in their development, I think, speaks highly, you know, both about the, the, you know, means that their talent pool is perhaps, you know, it was easy to overlook when they were struggling at times and had up and down seasons in the lower levels. Now, virtually all of their top prospects have had, a lot of them had solid years in the upper level, so it, it gets them a little bit deeper. Um, what they're probably looking for, though, in the next couple of years, is to find the, the true impact talent who can really, like you know, who can really represent those star caliber building blocks. And you know, they they have Devers in the major leagues now as one of those who's you know who's under team control for four more seasons. Um, but you know, they need to kind of recreate that top end pipeline. Uh, and it is, they just need more of everything, right? They need more guys uh, to provide, you know, to provide baseline depth. Their season was undone this year in no small part because they lacked, uh, they lacked rotation depth. Um, and so they're getting to a better place with that, with guys like Mata and like, uh, like Thad Ward, maybe uh, some other guys who are going to be in the upper levels this year. Um, but they, they just need to, you know, they, they, there's not one area of need in order to become a well-rounded organization. They need, they kind of need more of everything, and they need, you know, in order to be, in order to move up into the top half farm system rankings, they're going to need to have, um, you know, kind of one of those top 50 guys reaching in reaching the upper levels uh, and getting a little bit closer to the uh, to the big leagues as um, as a as an emergent core piece. Well, we'll see if that development can take place. But in the meantime, the Red Sox, for all the issues that took place this season, they still finished with a winning record. They were still competitive for a good chunk of the season. They're still a really good young talent core. This is not a team that by any means is necessarily at the end of its run. There's definitely room for many more winning seasons to come. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight as always. Uh, Thanks a lot, Kyle. Good Good to connect. Absolutely. Well, everyone, that'll do it for another edition of the Baseball America Prospect Podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to Alex Spear of the Boston Globe for joining us. For Alex, I'm Kyle. Thanks for listening, everybody.